The Disciplined Investor is underwritten by Interactive Brokers Stock Yield Enhancement Program. Earn extra income on the fully paid shares of stock in your brokerage account. Open an Interactive Brokers account today and learn more at ibkr.com slash S-Y-E-P. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. And we're kicking the can down the road. That's what happens when infants are in charge. Technical patterns, broken charts are piling up. In economic news, live by the sword and die by the statistic. And I'm getting that old familiar feeling again. All this and sloping moving averages on episode number 735 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. And welcome to the Disciplined Investor Podcast. So glad you stopped by. It's one wild week we had here, wasn't it? And why? Well, once again, we have to recognize that we have children in charge of the country. Infants, babies. That, well, they're back. The cavalry has arrived to make things good. And we've seen that time and time again. I mean, ugh, there are no such thing. The fact is that when they are doing their thing, watch out. Problems are going to arrive in other places where they push, something's going to pull. Where there's going to pull, something's going to push, and they're going to make it worse than it was before. Hey, for all you first-timers, hello. <laughs> I'm Andrew Horowitz, and I'm founder of Horowitz & Company, Inc., wealth and investment management firm, and we're down here in South Florida, but we work with people all over the well the world, but really all over the country. No matter where you are, we can help you. Because what we do is, well, we invest and help people look at their vast amount of opportunities to get them towards what they want to believe and perceive and see as their financial security, their financial independence. Basically, it's not complicated. Well, at least for us, because that's what we do. But basically, what we are doing is making sure to optimize what you have how your investments are allocated, positioned, and then work with what is going on around the world to do our best to position it in a way that will help you. This is the diversification part. This is my, my, my discussion of the flower garden, and it's all about making sure that you have upside opportunity and don't get absolutely blindsided when things don't go just simply up. We work with folks just like you every day. And the reason I tell you this is that I want you to feel home here. I want you to feel like this is a place that you can feel is safe to ask questions and learn about money and finance and investments and really have the opportunity to, to be somewhere where you can feel free to do so. Now, for those of you who have been coming here for a while because we've been out this for a while, we still have a lot more to learn for all of us, including myself. 
because one of the reasons that there's always more to know is that the rules keep on changing on us. But one thing that never seems to change is human nature. From fear to greed, from greed to fear, back around from hysteria to absolute euphoria. The idea that in investing, there are opportunities that are created. And depending on where we are in the cycle, there's going to be a significant amount of people that think that, hey, this is a great time. And then there's another half that's going to, you know what? This is the worst time ever to invest. That's what makes a market. But I wanted to, to start out this show today. Here we are in the beginning of October, 2021. Markets have been seesawing a bit. And I'm out there talking with people, talking with clients, but also talking with other investment advisors. And I'm talking with people in research. I'm talking with friends and colleagues. And uh, there's this, this old familiar feeling that I'm getting lately. This something about what we're hearing and what I'm thinking and what's happening and what I'm understanding kind of reminds me of something, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I was thinking, you know, I may have, I think I wrote about this before somehow. I feel like I had a long essay on this or a blog post many years ago and I really couldn't put my finger on it. It was, what was it? What was it? And then I, I thought, you know, now that I think about it, I think this is right in the beginning of my first book, The Disciplined Investor, Essential Strategies for Success. I said, you know, this was when I was trying at the time before markets collapsed in 2008, 2009, because the book was written and published. Uh, when was it published? Hang on a second. Exactly. I'm going to I'm going to find this for you. I'm going to find this for you. It's in the front part, right? Here we go. It was 2000. It was put out in 2008, written in 2007, before all this happened. And I talked about it on the back. As a matter of fact, in 2007, I wrote about current financial trends indicate that within the next three to six years, which I was kind of close on that, global markets could face another significant plunge similar to the market crash of 87 and 2000. And I talked about some of the reasons why. But basically... What I wanted to, to um, I just took my bookmark out where I wanted to talk about too, uh, was the, the, um, the, the idea of wh what made me feel like something I remember from before. And on the first, by the way, you can get this book on Audible. It's called The Disciplined Investor, Essential Strategies for Success. And if you do buy it, when you go and buy it on Audible, you should write me because... When you write me, uh, I will give you a, uh, uh, a supplemental package that comes along with the book, that goes with the charts and the fundamental analysis, kind of uh, visuals that are there. And as I was thinking about this whole part here, and I, and I kind of want to read it to you, I realized, you know what, it's probably about time we start kicking up those webinars again and do some giveaways and do the education and question and answer that we did last last year so effectively and so many people really liked it but we just had to stop it was just uh, it wasn't enough time in the day but I think we're going to start that again towards the end of this year so so um be aware of that but anyway that old familiar feeling 
I want you to think back to a time when you may have heard this. And I read from the opening chapter of, of my book. This is page seven. And um, I'm going to cut in here. It's not like any particular spot. But I'm cut in. It says, what I wrote was prosperity permeated the air and was coupled with an insatiable desire for wealth accumulation which served as the primary catalyst for change. People were talking about the greatest return they made that week and were, were hiding from the obvious concern that they could actually lose money someday. Stories of that old stock market were banned from discussion and the new era of investing was clearly here to stay. Investigations and reports concerning excessively high-priced earnings ratios that exceeded historical levels were often suppressed and resembling fully indoctrinated cult followers, no one seemed to want to ask any questions, especially ones like, why is it so easy to make money? Or when will it end? Instead, innate greed brainwashed the masses, transforming investors into gamblers. And anyone who threw caution to the wind eventually realized that there was a reason why many of the experts declared the markets overvalued and thus recommended looking toward other investments and diversification techniques. If you're one of the late players in the game, you know the fall from grace that started in March of 2000 was a severe one. Across the board, stocks lost a good part of their gains that may, they were made during the prior five years, and some mutual funds were cut down by 30% or more. And I go on to talk about how not everyone got up, caught up in the frenzy and give a few different examples of that. But the frenzy, you know, fusion frenzy. Remember that game? Fusion frenzy, the frenzy that's going on right now, whether it's in the crypto space, whether it's in MTFs, whether it's in technology, healthcare, or name your particular area. I kind of had that old familiar feeling all over again. And when I read from that, and that was talking about 2000, which could have been placed on 2007, which could have been placed maybe where we are now. The reason why I say this is because everything is cyclical. It goes to show you that it's just one giant cyclical pattern that we need to learn from. With one obvious point. That that pattern will not always be exactly the same as the last one. The reasons why... Things moved up, moved down, went sideways, are not going to be the same. It's going to manifest itself in different ways, but it generally rhymes with the last pattern. Because what happens is that human nature is still the obvious force there. The human nature is bringing us from confidence and moving the market from troth to peak. From greed to fear, back to greed. It's looking at things outside of logic to provide for the, the, the motivation to buy or sell. And even, even if logically something is kind of obvious and right in front of you, markets are crushed and all of a sudden you realize that all the opportunity is there, but logic is saying that, you know what, valuations may not come back for a long time. It may prevent you from buying at that moment, which may be a key 
point to actually get your money involved in the market. So I think what's happening right now is we are starting to figure, try to figure out where exactly are we in the market cycle and, and how is that going to play out? How are we going to actually work out the details of the valuation question? The point in the economic cycle, the point in the market cycle that we're at, because things are much different today than they were last time. That doesn't mean that we can exclude certain, certain points and take fundamentals and throw them out the window. No, that's not the point. What it means is that there's a difference, but a rhythm, the rhythm and rhymes of, of last time. Let's take a quick break and... Ask the question, what is payment for order flow? We're talking about interactive brokers. Let me, let me give you the answer to that. Essentially, it's the money a market maker pays to your broker to trade with your order at a price they decide. Your broker will charge you no commission, but leave you no choice either. At interactive brokers, you do have a choice. You can choose to pay no commission like any other broker, or you can pay a smaller commission, and IBKR will try to match you with an institutional investor at a better price on that order. I want you to learn more about this. It's pretty interesting because it's something that's permeating the markets right now, something you really need to, to understand which way is better to trade. Learn more at IBKR.com slash P-F-O-F, payment for order flow. IBKR.com slash P-F-O-F. O-F. I think we should talk a little bit about what happened last week. We need to talk about the railroad tracks. Hmm? What? What, what is this guy talking about? Railroad tracks. This is a uh, made famous by William O'Neill from Investors Business Daily and from O'Neill uh, uh, Research. And uh, it was the idea that when you see markets or stock or price or whatever is going on that makes this pattern on a chart that is railroad tracks, usually daily or weekly, that that's something you need to pay attention to. It's a churn. It's where markets are not getting anywhere. This is a battle going on. And it's usually not a good thing after a market peaks. What happens is you get a, a line on the chart, a bar, if you will, of price range that moves from bottom to top in one. So you just get one, uh, one vertical line that denotes a daily bar. And then you get another one that is exactly opposite. One start to the bottom goes to the top. The other one goes start to the top, goes to the bottom. When you start seeing that, it looks like a railroad track, right? Just kind of moving up. That's a problem. And the reason for that is that, you know, you're starting to see there's a big fight happening in the market between the bulls and the bears. Those that think that they should be buying and moving things to a higher price and those are saying, hey, no way, this is a, a sell point at this level. But more so when you see these lines that are matched up so well, you start to wonder if you're at the end of a particular move. And we're starting to see some of those crop up in the charts and you're starting to see those Days when you have 300-point gain one day, 300-point loss the next day on the Dow, 500-point one day, 500-point the other day, all in opposite 
And then you see one out of nowhere gapping down, then pulling back up to close higher. And that usually right now, it happens to be the signal that all is clear. We hit the bottom. People are buying and put the gas back on. It's kind of started, I think, that pattern recognition with the cryptocurrencies. And if you look at that, when you see bottom line spikes down with a major amount of volume, usually that's a turnaround situation where people start saying, hey, we're flushing out the bottom. Good time to start buying in. Railroad tracks. William O'Neill, look it up. Now, one of the things that happened also, and the reason for this, and probably I would say one of the primary reasons, is that we see interest rates that are starting to move pretty significantly once again, like we saw back in March. And the level that we saw this time was a rate higher on the 10-year that many were saying was, hey, you know what? If we get to this point, there's some concern. If we get to 1.6% again after we slope down, and on the 10-year I'm talking about, that is going to be an area that is going to start making me nervous, particularly for some of the areas in the market like the technology shares that have a tougher time making money when interest rates are higher. Then again, makes me really want to buy the banks, the financials, the uh, some of the materials possibly, and some of the value side if, in fact, it starts moving up to that level. We saw the five-year at the highest it's been in years. So why is all this happening? All of a sudden? Well, not really. I mean, on one hand, we saw that when Jay Powell was giving his presentation a week and a half ago at that Wednesday meeting where he gave that rate decision and then followed up with a press conference talking about, yeah, we're probably going to do this tapering, which we've talked about. I talked about the tapering at length on Frank Curzio's podcast, a video podcast this week, where I look really uh, exceptionally like, uh, like I'm on a steroid or something for my face for some reason, but some weird shadowing going on and kind of pink and pale. I don't know what is happening with that video, but I look terrible. But I had a lot of, hopefully I had a, a lot of good things to say. Now, what, what was really important about this was that what we're seeing right now is the realization of, hey, this is really going to happen. That there is going to be this tapering. That even though we saw a pretty crappy jobs report on Friday, and some will say that, wait, what do you mean crappy? We were at 4.8%. Some of the best numbers we've seen, and clearly the best numbers lowest since this pandemic began. Wow. Look at how that unemployment rate came down. What are you talking about, Horowitz? Not getting into all of this and not boring you with all the details, but basically the issue that I'm having is that there is a, a very fancy statistical measure that was dreamed up to calculate what the unemployment rate is. And the problem is that the actual number, the real unemployment rate that is happening in our country right now is far from where we are seeing this 4.8% number that was presented to us on Friday. Now, we have to understand that that's something that is officially in the record books. It's not going to be changed. It's not going to be adjusted. It is 4.8% end of sentence. Shut up, Horowitz. Move on. But 
We need to take a little bit of a deeper dive, a closer look at what is going on and how that number got to 4.8%, the lowest since the pandemic began on just a paltry edition of 194,000 new hires versus the 500,000 that was estimated and the 5.1% estimated unemployment rate that was put forth. So we have somehow magically a lower by 300,000 plus number that was added to the payrolls, but yet we are better by 0.3%, a very significant statistical differential from the estimates. And here's the problem. It's the way that this series is calculated that shows us that, you know what? Hmm. Yes, we're at 4.8% and people in other countries that are going to see it over the weekend and be like, hey, look at the United States. Look how good they're going. Ooh-wee. Man, that quantitative easing, those low interest rates and everything that's going on is really helping out. Joe Biden's going to take a victory lap. So is Congress. Everybody is going to be happy because that's what they do. That's what happens. But the way that this series is calculated, the more people that are exiting the workforce, the more potentially that it will see a drop in the unemployment rate. It's a simple division calculation and frankly, really dumb. Now, do I have a better way? I mean, go back to what it was before all this was changed. Fact is, people leaving the workforce are actually going to provide for a statistical anomaly that allows for us to see a significant drop in the unemployment rate. That makes no sense. We know there still is a significant amount of people that are actually unemployed. But this number, because it's the one that's going to be recorded in the record books, is going to probably cause the Fed to say, well, even though the number was 194,000 and there's all that labor slack in the market, we can't ignore that we've taken this down and possibly going to be much more aggressive or at least state a plan on their quantitative easing tapering. And this way of calculating this number is a problem. And it's a problem this time around in particular when we're seeing when we've gone to a, a period of a recessionary cycle into a recovery. Because even though the more of the things that you know change, well, the more this the same. This time, though, the pandemic, the shutdown, the, the reopening, the massive amount of money that was given to people directly all around the world is really quite a different situation. And trying to get used to and, and, and try to believe that old metrics will be the cure and the answer and have the ability to provide us any meaningful data is just simply stupid. Silly? Not right? Whatever you want to call it. So rates are going up as the knowledge of the taper is coming, however that may be. And they, I think they're going to go pretty slowly with this. I've talked about this a hundred times with what the reality of the taper is. It's not a shutdown. It's just a, uh, you know, closing off the valve a little bit. And, and what we have is that we also have one other component that's pushing up rates as well. The, re, the reality that, man, 
these stimulus bills, the 1.2 or whatever, the 2.5, the 3.2, the 3.5, whatever the, gen the, the, the latest gyration of the particular bills, there's two of them that are out there, the human infrastructure and the actual infrastructure bill, right? <laughs> whatever they're calling it. Because i got to call it something fun. The, the idea of passing this seems to be petering out. And rates are probably going higher as this massive stimulus bill and the fire that was lit under it is kind of being extinguished. You can see the smoke everywhere. We're finding that it's going to be very difficult for them to pass this. Can't even get, listen, we can't even get a full budget passed and a debt ceiling relief. What they did was a stopgap, kicking the can down the road to December 3rd. So we have to go through all of this pain and agony for the next month and a half again. And they're going to bring it right to the 11th hour to try to stuff as much sausage as they can into that, as much as pig pork and fat and, and, and all sorts of earmarks, et cetera, into that so they can make it for themselves. I mean, the problem is that right now, and it's not that much different than any other time, but Congress in its entirety could not decide on whether to order a hamburger or a cheeseburger if they tried. And today it's much more even supercharged about politics. Politics over substance. There's no experience in business, and we are electing them to run the biggest business in the world. So right now the deal looks kind of like a little bit more of a long shot. And that's a big question. Well, if that's the case, we may not get that excess stimulus. And therefore, it's not going to require the same amount of bonds to be issued, thereby not requiring the continuation of the uh, bond program. Plus, you know, creating that much money out of midair doesn't actually provide for as much downside and debasement of the currency that it did if it was. That's why we're also seeing the dollar rise so significantly. They work hand in hand. So Congress, their inability to agree to anything together or even try, because they're not trying. They're not negotiating. If they're split down by party line, there's no negotiation going on, no discussion going on. Because if it was, you'd see a few flipping sides here and there. So this deal looks like a long shot. And it looks like, well, something will come out of this process, but it will not be the elevated levels that were promised for months going into this. All right, there was also some, some interesting news items that were of interest this week. Clearly, the China Evergrande situation, it's not getting any better at all. I mean, they're, they're trying to cover it up. You know, my, my discussion about covering things up, right? You could have great, you know, a, a great uh, a chocolate icing, but if it's on a pile of dog crap, there's still dog crap underneath. It may look good. You may want to say, hey, man, that could be tasty, but no. Just by covering it up over the top does not mean that anything underneath it is even edible. Same thing with China Evergrande. 
the amount of debt that they owe and the situation that they've incurred due to the fact that the government was allowing them to expand at a level of debt that was unsustainable is not going to make anything better, especially with what's happening in the property sector of China right now. What's happening is they're trying to work it out, whether they get a bailout, an actual infusion of money by the government, or possibly they go private. That's also something that can happen. There is going to be, uh, and maybe even a pass on some of the debt that's outstanding right now in terms of the payment on that debt. But they also have a bigger situation that is starting to really get troubling, and that is that we have very highly leveraged developers that are going to put, uh, dare I say, a kink in China's recovery. The situation that's going on right now and the lack of confidence and the losses that are going to be incurred by individuals and banks and possibly the government and investors and you name it down the line who was invested because they were very much in China all about the property development that was backed by the government and seemed like it was a, a no-lose situation. And now we're talking about people losing 80 90% of their investment in these deals. That is not going to bode well. That is not going to bring confidence to a level where people are willing to expend money and continue the the investment in things of this nature, which was really the backbone of China's ability to have an economy that was running really hot. So this leverage that needs to come out of the market right now is going to be a problem. And the big question, and I think there was a few comments from uh, Secretary uh, Blinken, I think Yellen, there was a few different discussions throughout the week about this, about how we need to really watch and see how it makes its way through the global economy and what kind of leakage or, dare I say, um, spread of this economic virus that is now taking place in China is really going to make its way offshore. There's been a lot of questions and a lot of commentary about how much or how little, I should say, really of the debt or equity that is owned by U.S. banks, and that should not be a problem. But at the same time, you have to wonder, well, where else is a lot of these investments buried? And what's going to be coming out if this does, in fact, go belly up? There will be global implications. There will be ramifications. There will be people losing money. And that is something that we need to look at. I do think that we can get beyond some of this if China actually does a bailout and then controls the rest of the property sector by allowing them to essentially default is going to create a cascading impact on the rest of the property developers and then have far-reaching implications on the banking sector that is struggling already with what China is doing to kind of bring in and rein in some of the excess speculation that's out there. Cutting off the jugular vein maybe is not the best way to keep the body going. Maybe in this circumstance, it needs to be a little bit of a softer approach. Because I think what they're doing right now is reasonable, trying to make sure that the debt that is in the economy is, is reasonably um, invested in, understood as speculative. 
and then, uh, but not cut it off entirely right away. I just don't think that's a good idea. Now, Facebook, we saw some news there too. There's some interesting coincidences, don't you think? This week, uh, when we saw the whistleblower giving congressional testimony, and then at the same time, there was this outage, this six-hour outage that all of a sudden was kind of alongside of all the craziness going on with what this whistleblower was saying about the evil nature of Facebook and how they put uh, profitability over safety, which I don't think is news to anyone. Now, what this is going to do is stir up controversy and stir up the, the desire for a lot of people in Congress and senators to make a name for themselves by holding hearings and asking a lot of dumb questions. Facebook, as morally bankrupt as the company is and will be, is probably the best advertising platform out there, and it can't be ignored. So they're going to be in the hot seat for a while, that's for sure. We're going to see all sorts of discussion from Zuck trying to come out and provide reasons and alternative facts and realities of all this. That's going to be on the horizon. And uh, one more item I think is interesting from this week. We saw Merck announcing a, a new COVID treatment pill. Now, there's a somewhere about, I think we have to get more information about this because it was still in a trial, but a 50% effectiveness in treatment for people who are hospitalized with uh, further hospitalization and or death. So that is kind of good as a treatment. And uh, what it did was smack the vaccine companies pretty, pretty significantly because now maybe people are, you know, not sure if they want to take a, a vaccine or not because it's like, Hey, well, if we got a couple of different treatments and probably if I come down with COVID, if I take these and even the late stage of, if, if I'm, if I need to be hospitalized, if I take this, that it really shuts down the potential for me to die, then maybe I don't need the vaccine. I'm not quite sure this is a game changer, but again, many people may think that I don't need to get the vaccine at this point because there is something out there. I mean, I still, I still like the mRNA companies and other genetic biotech companies especially some in the CRISPR area, which took another beating this week, too, on a study of another company that had a little bit of an issue and and was halted due to um, some genetic issue and findings. But I think there's a lot of promise in some of these companies, as well as the vaccine companies that really is setting stage of beyond COVID, what's the next thing that could really be significant? So... Kind of really interesting news that moved the markets, and you can kind of look at those three items, the China Evergrande situation, the Facebook, which is a major market cap, of course, and the potential for Congress to start thinking about, hey, let's break them up. Let's, uh, yeah, we got to break up Facebook. We got to break up Amazon. We got to break up the Microsoft. We got to break up the companies, which could, in fact, backfire and unlock incredible value. But anyway, you know, Congress is going to make a stand. They're going to get a microphone in front of their face so they can kind of uh, say, oh, look what my congressperson is doing. How smart of them to ask these questions. And then finally, the uh, Merck announcement. All three of those probably contributed to those railroad tracks that we talked about a little while ago, and I think that's something to consider. Now, finally, next week, two things. Uh, I think 
we're going to be seeing some very important indicators and, and, and series in terms of economics next week. First and foremost, we have some more clues about inflation. CPI and PPI are going to be out. I'm pretty sure they're going to come out a bit hot and uh, then be written off. Again, I think that we're going to probably see a few months as we see the supply chain not really healing and, 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 and shortages really continuing to bring prices to levels in one area or another. We see bacon this week or uh, coal next week. Who knows what it is? But there's going to be a continuation of these high prices as we're seeing shortages in the supply chain. And a couple of other thoughts as we close, get close to year end, I thought I'd mention to you that it's time to start really thinking about maxing out your retirement plan. If you haven't done it already, make sure that you have enough time before the end of the year if you have a 401k plan. IRAs, you could do a little bit longer, but if you have a pension plan of any sort, whether it's your business or you work for somebody else, it's kind of time that you need to start looking at that and also doing some planning of, okay, hey, I may have inherited IRA. I may be over 72. Do I need to take my required minimum distribution from my IRA. You got to do it by the end of the year if you're over the age of 72. So start thinking about that and make sure that's set up because getting away from you, it's not a good thing if you don't take enough and it's not a good thing if you are eligible to and you don't put in enough. Two sides of the retirement process there. Two sides. All right, well, with that, we will end it this week because we had a lot to talk about there. Make sure to check out thedisciplinedinvestor.com and tell your friends, hey, Joe, hey, subscribe to this guy on uh, Apple or on uh, uh, Podchaser or uh, podcast.com or whatever you're using. This guy's got some good stuff to talk about. We have a great guest coming up next week. Frank Curzio is going to be our guest next week. So I'm looking forward to that. And we've got a good best of setting up for the week after that. So lots in store. Frank has told me that he is going to tell us, listen to this, the one thing that if it happens, the market will come down and get crushed. And also the two things that you need to be knowing about and investing in right now. So that's coming up next week with Frank Curzio. Hey, it's Andrew Horowitz signing off for the day. Thanks so much for joining me. I'll see you around town. I'll see you around the... The, the Twitterverse at Andrew Horowitz. And uh, thanks for joining me. See you soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. 
Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. 